So today we're welcoming to the show Chris Adilio. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Chris. Sure. Um, I am a high school English teacher. I live in the States in uh, New York. I have been writing since I was very young. I wrote my first short story when I was in second grade, actually. And then I got yeah. serious about writing when I was in my 20s. And then I got my first book published right around when I was 30. And now I'm 43. So I've been doing it for a while. It's going pretty well. Fantastic. So how did I, how did you actually get started in writing in second grade? Well, I, re I remember it vividly because I remember I wrote a short story. It must have just been some kind of, you know, creative writing task. And I, I wrote a short story about a raindrop that lives its entire life as it is, you know, born in the clouds and it falls through the sky. And then yeah. it experiences all these little adventures. This was like in a page and a half, maybe. And, you know, meeting yeah. other raindrops. And then the story ends when it hits the concrete and splashes and dies. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I, I remember the teacher, she loved it so much. I remember she wrote A plus 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 and it just the pluses just kept going like off the off the page. So I think I fell in love from that point on. Oh, and did you ever think about making that as a children's book? <laughs> it's that actually has come up a couple times. I think we'd have to have maybe a, a happier ending than hitting the concrete. <laughs> that would be cool to do something like that. <laughs> so what drew you to the horror genre specifically? So that's interesting. So my father loved horror. He loved, you know, horror literature. He loved horror movies and he especially loved Halloween. So when I grew up in, you know, the the 80s, my father was one of those people who would decorate the front lawn of the house. And so yeah. it was it, it turned into the Delille haunted graveyard. Basically, he had <laughs> gravestones made. He would dress up in costume. He had his friends in costume. He had strobe lights, fog machine, all of these things, you know, scary music. And then to top it off, he had a carpenter friend of his build a life-size colonial-style coffin for him so that he could set it up and come out of it as a monster oh. to scare the trick-or-treaters. And then the rest of the year, the coffin was in our downstairs, and he had the carpenter make shelves, and then he would put his horror collection in there. So I grew up, like, sometimes sneaking down into the, the basement there to open up the coffin door to see, you know, these these horror books with their kind of garish, bloody covers and, you know, all of those early Stephen King books. And when he passed away when I was 11, I remember sneaking down there and just and choosing one. And and from then on, it was like this thing of trying to commune almost with him. You know, here was something my father really loved. And yeah. so then I found my way into horror like that and uh, there's no been no turning back since that's uh it's a lovely way of trying to commune thank you so walk us through your process for developing a story idea oh that's interesting too because it can take so many different 
approaches. I was just talking about this the other day with a, a couple other writers because um, we were doing this signing and then somebody always will ask, you know, oh, where do you get your ideas? And of course, nobody really knows where we get our ideas. But when you get the idea, wherever it's coming from, how you go about, you know, shaping it into something seems, at least for me, to vary book by book, story by story. You know, sometimes I'll get the idea, the the magical few times it happens where you get the idea and it's um, like complete and you can see how everything is going to play out. Yeah. But very often it's usually like I'll, I'll play around with an idea, the voice of a character, especially. And I love to write longhand, at least at the beginning. So I use um, Palomino Blackwing pencil on Rhodia yellow notepads because I just love the, the feel of that experience. And so I'll write 5, 10, 15, sometimes 30 pages and then if it's going well, I'll be like, oh, I see where this is going. And then I can jump to, you know, typing it into the computer and go yeah. from there. Um, but it all depends on, you know, where the the narrative engine is of each story. Sometimes it's the character. Sometimes it's whatever the strength of the, the plot scenario is. I mean, it really it really varies because I have to tell myself that every time I start something, each story, each book kind of teaches you how to write that particular story. Um, so <laughs> that's, I don't know if that's a great answer to your question, but <laughs> it, it, it does vary each time. Yeah. But in terms of like practicality, what I do is I'm fairly disciplined is I get up every morning at 4 a.m. and I write from about four to six. Usually I read and write during that time because then I have to get ready and go to work and teach high schoolers. But the morning time is usually when I get most of it done. Your students know that you're a horror author. Yes. Yeah. It's funny how that pops up sometimes. So I have some of my books, not all of them, but some of them in my classroom, you know, mixed in with other, you know, more traditional authors in there. And every once in a while, a kid will notice or he or she will find me on, you know, any of the social media platforms. And yeah. They'll always ask, they'll say like, oh, is this you? And they think it's, they think that I'll deny it. And of course I don't deny it. I'm like, yeah, obviously that's me. That's my name. That's the yeah. picture. And some, some kids will be like, oh, that's really cool. And this year I had a kid like, oh, can I read one of them? Sure. You know, and I, I forgot which book he took and, and he took it and it was a couple weeks later. And I was like, oh, hey, you know, have you been reading my book? <laughs> He's like, you know, uh, I'm like two or three pages into it, you know, it's not bad. <laughs> so they, they can be, uh, they can be brutally honest, but you know, it, it's, they do know, and some of them think it's cool. And some of them will, will let me to believe like, Oh, this could be someone who could read it. And then they'll say, nah, I don't read books. When's the movie yeah. coming out? <laughs> That's our day and age. <laughs> yes, exactly. So do you have, um, do you use any particular tools or software to help organize your stories and keep track of plot lines and characters? Well, that's, you know, it's interesting when I'm typing, I use a Scrivener. I definitely use that program. I have found that to be really 
very helpful in terms of, especially when you're you're writing and you want to break things down into the scenes, because then it has this compile function that really works well. So it's like you can write it in whatever um, font or size you want, and then it just it'll adjust it when it compiles it into like industry standard or PDF yeah. or EPUB or whatever. So I do I do like that. Um, as I mentioned before, I love writing by hand. So I have a lot of the Rodia notebooks. I have a lot of field notes for little um, little notes that I jot down, and I always say that I need to get more organized because I'll end up with just these random pages of notes and then trying to compile them. It is very chaotic looking, but I do love that kind of analog madness approach to yeah. it because I like the tactile feel of that. Yeah. Completely. I used I used Scrivener when I first started. I have moved over to Atticus though. Um, I find some of the templates quite good to play around with. Oh, nice. I haven't heard of Atticus. What are, what do you like about it? Um, it's basically, I, I like the fact that you can change the um, templates and where mm. everything's set in it. Um, they are constantly updating it as well. So they're constantly bringing new things out. So uh, I just found it a lot easier to maneuver around than I did with Scrivener. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, I can see that. Yeah, Scrivener is not... It's definitely not intuitive. It's <laughs> you have to like search online every time you want to figure out how to do something new. So I have to check yeah. out. Attic oh, thank you. Yes, um, Atticus is more. I think it's more beginner friendly uh, for mm -hmm. when I first started. Whereas right. uh, Scrivener is quite hard. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. It's all, it's all right once you get used to it, isn't it? But once you, yeah. you've got to get to that point. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so how do you decide on the settings and the atmospheres in your stories? I think that with most of them, I they tend, usually they tend to come to me, the ideas where I'm like, oh, that makes sense. That'll be in this town. And it's usually around where I live. So I live like an hour, hour and a half outside of New York City, kind of near West Point, basically. Um, and so there's lots of little towns out here, and I grew up in one of these little towns. Um, so generally speaking, that's where it ends up, probably just because, you know, that's the life I know. That's kind of where I live now. I teach in a school district that is in a small town like that as well. So it, it just seems like that's where the characters, the ideas kind of pop up and it's it's also in new york's hudson valley which has a nice history of hauntings and horror and and that kind of thing so there's especially now in october there's a nice feel to the area that's yeah. just suggestive of horror okay so tell us about your books so it's somebody had asked me, you know, well, how do you do you have certain themes or whatever, something like that? And oh, this was again the other day with those writers. And I was looking at the books and I said, oh, wow, in almost all of my books, I have the the villain or somebody in there kind of gets obsessed with something or the villain is like some kind of zealot believing in some kind of cult, let's say, or some evil power, or whatever it happens to be, or stalking someone. 
Mm. And it's fun, it's funny because I, I remember writing each of these ideas, but to, to kind of stand back and say, oh, wow, I have nine books at this point, and there's this common theme throughout. So if someone were to ask me to describe my books, I'd say, well, they certainly revolve a lot around the extremes of human behavior because I think I'm quite scared of – let's say, irrational behavior, madness, zealotry, yeah. stuff like that. And through the books, you know, I've explored it in like a typical demon possession way a few times in the devil virus and then again in Dead End. And then I've explored cults in um, Children of Fire and then the hands of Onan. And so it, it's a similar notion there. And then I wrote another book called Revival Road, which was about a road in a suburban town in which a child dies accidentally in the beginning. And then the child comes back to life seemingly fine. But of course, they're not really fine because they're hearing strange voices that are telling them to do odd things. And then other people end up dying on this road and they come back to life and there's a woman who believes this is an act of god so then she basically starts her own kind of zealot you know cult on this street and then it really gets out of hand pretty fast so i yeah. think my books are about <laughs> extreme human behavior and then they lead to really over the top you know dramatic moments because i think that's what i'm really afraid of so how do you sort of like place in the horror story to maximize the, su the suspense and the scares? If you, if you it's... get through. Oh, no, go ahead. Um, for example, the book you just mentioned, how how did you maximize the, the suspense and the scares in that book? So with that one, with Revival Road, I, and that's my longest book by far. So like typically books are what, like 80 to 100,000 words, let's say for a full novel. That one was maybe 170,000 words. So like the length of two books. So it's even more challenging in, in that regard in terms of the pacing. But what I always try to keep in mind is what is the narrative through line, right? Okay, so what is bringing people back to life on this road? And then I have to have this, you know, this other main character or two who are going to get tied into this. And of course, it's their mission to figure out what's going on. And then you've got the villain, this woman, Sherry Matthews, who believes, you know, this is an act of God. And she is kind of going against them because she thinks that, you know, they don't believe that it's God. So when I was writing it, it came down to balancing a lot of the characterization with kind of over-the-top action sequences and then really trying to squeeze all the suspense I could out of those mm -hmm. action scenes and out of the scenes that were like building up to it. And it, it also has a lot of characters in it, which I love that. Like I love a book, a big horror novel that's got tons of characters, but it's quite the challenge to keep them all in your head at once yeah. and then <laughs> trying to keep all these different characters going. So like if there's several of them leading to one place where something's going to happen, I really have to, you know, bounce back and forth, but it can't just be a simple, like check in, like, Oh, here's just this guy and what he's doing. Each scene still has to serve a purpose, moving him or her forward 
but then also connecting to their journey as a character. And then hopefully that ties into the plot, you know, into the main story. And so I kind of go with like the feel of it as I'm going and I've gotten better. I think at being critical of myself and saying, well, just because you like this part doesn't mean you should keep this part. Like, is it really working towards the whole and then as I revise, I try to keep that in mind to create something that will keep you moving, but give you some kind of depth as well. Yeah. So what's your approach to character development then? <clears throat> with that one, like, cause it can be all over the place, but with that one, I, I tried something that I feel like it was the author, um, Ferris, I think he said something about having his characters write him letters. And so I thought, oh, that's really fascinating. Because I, at one point, I think I had, before I even started writing the book, I think I had a ridiculous amount of characters, you know, just notes I jotted down, you know, 30-something characters, let's say. So I just yeah. started having them write me letters. So it was like, dear Chris, you know, I am whoever, Sherry Matthews, I should be in your book because, and I remember hers because it really allowed me to find her voice because she had such conviction about what she was saying. You know, she was positive that whatever these things were happening, God was behind it, right? And that she was going to serve God's will kind of thing. And then I was going through and I had, you know, all the characters, just like a page or two. And there's definitely characters who didn't make the cut who I thought would have been in it. Because when I was writing the letters, they didn't really make a good case to me that they should exist. Yeah. So I haven't really tried that um, activity since but that was really a, a very memorable one as opposed to doing like a traditional, you know, here's this character, here's how old she is, here's what she eats for breakfast kind of thing. Instead, yeah. it was just like, who is she and what's her voice and what does she want? So I did enjoy that. I might have to do that again soon. That was that was a good endeavor. Yeah, I've never heard of that way before. I've always heard of the way where you plot them down on a piece of paper. Yeah, no, and a friend of mine who is uh, a playwright, he he had said that to me before. He's like, oh, you know, just always make a list of the characters and what they like. And I always thought that was kind of dry. So then I saw whoever it was um, recommend this idea online, and I tried it, and it was cool because it lets you get into their voice. Now, the downside is sometimes – you're just you're just writing this letter. So if you don't really know what's going to happen in the book, then who knows what they're even saying in the letter. Um, yeah. But at the same time, maybe you'll discover cool things like maybe they'll say something you didn't realize. And maybe it'll connect back to the bigger plot. You know, it's a an interesting activity. Yeah. So what's the most difficult story or scene that you've ever had to write? And why was it challenging? Oh, wow. That is a great question. <laughs> um, that's really good because there are so many scenes, like just from a general perspective, um, it's the writing of like action scenes and, you know, um, let's say even fighting a monster or gory scenes or whatever it happens to be. Those usually take just the longest anyway, because I'm really trying to, you know, get all the suspense I can out of it um 
but there have definitely been scenes where I say, well, this, how am I going to do this? Like, how do I pull this off? Um, there was one in dead end, which is probably my most personal story, because as I mentioned before, you know, my father died when I was 11. And so essentially the main character in that book is probably the closest main character to me that I've ever created. And he suffers his father's loss right at the beginning. And then he ends up moving back home to take care of his mother. And then it ties into this curse that has kind of befalled the the street that he lives on that his father was involved in and there were some scenes in there where he's remembering his father or he's interacting with his mother um or also his wife is starting to you know lose her bearings a little bit and i remember struggling through some of them because they felt so real yeah um so that's one. And then most recently, um, a couple of years ago, I wrote this the book Children of Fire, which is about a ex-detective who has to infiltrate a religious cult um, to save a child. So there is a sequence in there, a flashback sequence, where he's basically hallucinating on this terrible trauma that he and his wife suffered um, when they lost their child. And I've never gone through something like that, but writing that sequence, I really wanted it to be really effective, both, of course, scary, but not over the top. And of course, showing respect and, and really viewing it from like, okay, if I was this guy and I really suffered this, what would this be like? How would this mess with your mind? And I took a long time with that sequence to really try to you know do it justice so that that's probably the most difficult sequence um, I, I remember I even went into like second person point of view a little bit in there because there's kind of like a disassociation with the trauma that he's suffering so I, was, I tried lots of things um, and, and I'm happy with how it came out but that's probably the the most difficult one yeah, I would. I could imagine it would be obviously not having suffered it yourself. You've got to try and stay respectful, haven't you, for readers that have. Oh no, absolutely. Yeah, because that would be obviously the worst. We don't ever want readers to think that we're just trying, you know, to be exploitative kind of thing, you know, and any any kind of it God only knows what people have gone through, terrible things beyond belief, or what is bringing them to the page to read your story but i think it's important that we go at it with a a sense of respect in terms of whatever it is we're writing about so what's your most popular book and why do you think it's resonated with the reader so much well it's it's funny because there's to go back to the student thing i did have students several years ago read a a book uh, Blood Mountain that I wrote a long time ago at this point, um, which is just about a woman who goes hiking up a mountain with her father, and then they're attacked by this guy who's been stalking her. And that one does really well because it's really fast-paced, goes back and forth chapter by chapter from the woman's point of view and the stalker's point of view. Um, I have found that one to be successful Revival Road that I was talking about before, um, I haven't been able to get 
a lot of readers for that one yet, but all of the reviews have been very positive and the same thing for um children of fire i think yeah that one usually that one usually pleases people quite a lot like they feel very satisfied by that story fantastic so are there any exciting projects that you're currently working on that you can share with us sure well i have two new books both novellas coming out next year um <clears throat> one of them is coming from dnt publishing and then the other one is a, another book from grindhouse who published the hands of onan so the the one from dnt is it's called what darkness waits and it's about essentially here's if i'm going to give a pitch essentially it's like the story of the curious case of Benjamin Button, but told as if it's like a Tales from the Crypt episode, essentially. This guy's father um, ends up having a stroke, and then he starts to age in reverse, and he starts to become really afraid that his father is actually trying to take over his life. And then the other book from Grindhouse is called What ever happened to Joe Rose and it's basically an homage of sorts to kind of the exploitation films like whatever happened to baby Jane and I, I really tried to put my own kind of spin on it and I was very pleased that um, the publisher there Perry really liked it because it's also speaking of experiment experiments as a writer it's the first it may actually be the first thing I've ever written that is first person from a woman's point of view. So that that alone made it a really interesting challenge. And it means a lot to me that she thought it was good enough that she wants to publish it. So I'm very excited about those two uh, books as I'm also currently just working on various other things and, you know, seeing what kind of takes off and grabs me and what I'm going to work on next. Yeah. So how do you think the horror genres evolved over the years, in your opinion? Well, especially these past several years. It's funny, I guess, because the history of horror, you know, we go back to obviously the the 70s. And then, you know, you have uh, Stephen King becoming very popular. You have The Exorcist back then. And uh, Rosemary's Baby. And then you have the huge boom in the 80s. And then, you know, I was just a little kid then. But then when I was a teenager and I was really reading this stuff, it was the 90s. And right at the beginning of the 90s, it kind of horror started to have its bust and kind of fade out. And it's been a long time coming (laughs) for it to come back. But it's it's come back the last several years really very strongly and i i think one of the major aspects there is the diversity because if you go back and you look at you know 80s and 90s even i mean it's mostly you know white males essentially um but now there's a lot more diversity when it comes to horror and who's writing and who's being represented and kind of you know a a better picture i guess a more fair picture of what the world really is. And I was saying to somebody else um, that horror really is the most welcoming. I've been to several horror conventions at this point 
And I was just at one um, earlier this year, the AuthorCon in Virginia, and they they do this thing, um, the gross out contest, where you have three minutes to share a story that is like the grossest thing, and then the audience votes kind of thing. So you prepare your story ahead of time. And I participated, and it was phenomenal, and I actually won the competition, so I am a gross-out champion. But <laughs> afterward, when they were like, oh, say a few words, and I, uh, what I said was what I'll say right now, which was so true, I've never felt so welcomed before. You know, it's you can grow up loving horror, for example, and loving these movies, and there's always some people who like that, but a lot of times you can kind of feel like a freak. And then when you're with people who are of a similar mindset, you know, when you find your tribe or your ilk or whatever, it really makes you feel like, yes, you're not alone. There are there are other people. And so the horror community is just everybody is just very supportive and very welcoming and just very cool. And so I think that that is how horror has changed a lot, especially in the past, let's say, five, 10 years, whatever it happens to be that it's become much more welcoming and it just it seems like it's not you know this private boys club but everybody's there and i think it enriches everybody as a result it is um i totally agree um everybody that i've spoken to so far in these interviews and there's been quite a lot um have all said how um the horror community as a whole is extremely friendly and if anybody ever needed any help they're the first ones there to give help. They will help aspiring horror writers um, that are new and upcoming. They will help those. It's not like um, your typical playground click, if if you mm-hmm. know what I mean by that. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's it's all it's all very friendly. It seems there doesn't seem to be much drama in the groups either. They all seem to get along quite nicely. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's, you know, there's always one or two people who uh, might do something questionable, but we're very good at protecting each other and kind of, you know, making our stand that we're, you know, we're here to treat everyone equally and with respect. And that should that should just be a common decency thing. Of course, we know it's easier said than done, but it really has been true, I think, especially with the horror community. Yeah, that's right. So what advice would you give to aspiring horror writers? Well, I have a student right now who um, he was he's writing like a a fantasy, young adult fantasy type thing with a little some horror elements, let's say. But the, the advice still amounts to the same. So when I said to him, you know, I was just reading something in his journal. I said, oh, wow, this is really good. And he's like, oh, you you think so? I was like, yeah, absolutely. It shows a a lot of promise. And I don't think a teacher had ever really kind of encouraged him even to that point. And my advice was, you just have to keep writing. Like, you just have to keep doing it. And you just stay open to the ideas that might come to you. You know, read, read what you want. Read everything you can. Watch interviews. Listen to as many podcasts with writers. I still do that all the time. I still read, you know, books on the craft all the time. I'm always looking for new ideas. I'm, you know, always just staying open to it. But no matter what, it always comes down to the actual 
work. And then a couple of people at the other day at the signing who said they wanted to write books, you know, and they're just trying to find time. How do I find time? And I said, some, there's some mornings I get up at four and I'm just reading something. And then I end up just wasting my time and I'm moping around, whatever. And I force myself even just to write something as ridiculous as let's say 30 to 50 words, right? Which seems kind of like, well, what was the point? Well, as I said to these people, and I said to that kid, there's 50 words that weren't written before. So just putting in any kind of time, any kind of effort, and and just doing it because you want to, because you love it, because the story is calling to you, because it's something that is fulfilling you in some way, because ultimately, who knows what's going to happen? You publish a book. Most times the world is just going to shrug. Right. And so there's only ever a handful of people who are experiencing, you know, astronomical success, but you can really connect with other people, you know, but most of the time it's just you alone with however you're writing your story. And sometimes at least, you know, this is what I tell myself, you know, you've got to find the joy in it there. And if you can find that joy, then you can just keep doing it presumably forever, I guess. That's all right. You've got to love it, haven't you, really? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, that's fantastic. So where can we find your books, Chris? Uh, they are all available on Amazon. Um, some of them are available on Barnes & Noble. Some of them in uh, other um, smaller outlets. Like you can buy them directly. You can buy my Grindhouse book directly from Grindhouse. Um, they can also, anybody could reach out to me. I'm online at, at author DeLeo. Um, on everything on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I just got onto TikTok. I probably still have a Tumblr out there somewhere. People can reach yeah. out to me, and uh, I'm happy to, you know, sell them books directly and sign books. I'm always, always eager and happy to, in any way, get my books into anybody's hands if they're if they're so inclined. Brilliant. Well, it's been lovely having you on the show today, Chris. So thank you very much for coming on. Well, thank you very much. This was quite, uh, quite wonderful. Actually, it was delightful. It really made my made my day. I don't know how you actually found me, but I'm really <laughs> very honored that you that you did. And I've listened to a couple of your um, previous interviews. And uh, I, I really think you're onto something and I hope hope you continue to do it because it's going to be a great resource for everybody. Thank you. Um, yes, I will continue to do it. Um, it's killing me, but I'm going to continue. <laughs> <laughs> well, make sure you take care of yourself as, as well. <laughs> well. It's been lovely speaking to you today. Um, 